Good morning, and please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, and stand with me to read God's Word. You know that I have a stand each week, and it's because I, I read it in the Bible, but this is not the only way that people responded to God's Word in the Bible, but it's the one that is most conducive to our setting. If we did the fall flat on our faces thing, we'd have a little bit of a mess on our hands, probably, you know, moving chairs and what have you, so... Um, we're going to stand at, out of honor uh, to, to, to say, you know, this, we're going to hear something that's not man's word right now. We're going to hear God's word right now. And I know that when I stand, it kind of helps me to, to focus in. Uh, but I want to say this before I read. I'm going to say some things today that you may not like. I'm going to say some things today that you may love and everything in between. Uh, pray with me that what comes out of my mouth today would be pleasing to God but also know that whatever comes out of my mouth is also uh, meant in love. And uh, trusting that God is going to use what I say for his glory amongst his people. Okay? Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses... Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is from you. And Lord, that you have given it, you've spoken it, you have preserved it, you use it in our lives, Lord, you apply it to us. We thank you, Lord, that it is trustworthy. We thank you, Lord, that it is strong. And we thank you, Lord, that it is eternal. We pray once again, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word, that we would see your glory. Lord, that you would reveal to us who you want us to be and what you want us to do. And we will give you the glory for that. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me begin with a question. It's not a tough question. But I pretty much know the answer for most of us. The question is this. Is forgiveness easy or difficult for you? First hour, someone actually uh, yelled out, difficult. Okay, we can be interactive here. Is, Is forgiveness easy or difficult for you? Many find it a hard thing to do. Someone does you wrong. Can you let it go? Someone owes you money and asks to be released from the debt. Can you say, sure, no problem? Someone betrays you. They cheat you. They harm you. They injure you in some way. And they come back to you and they say, I really regret what I did. Can you find it in your heart to forgive? Maybe someone has spoken badly about you and it's come back around to you. And they come clean and they apologize. Can you choose no longer to relate to them according to what they did to you? Release them from the debt they owe. Forgiveness is a tricky, complicated business. Because you have to deal with feelings, emotions, pain, anger, resentment. You have to get past all that and then choose to let it go. By the way, forgiveness is a very God-pleasing thing to do, but it's also a very difficult thing to do. But here's the main point today. God wants us to forgive, not condemn. God wants us to forgive, not condemn, to show mercy rather than judgment. God wants us to forgive, not condemn, to show mercy rather than judge others. According to the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, we're to focus on God's name. Hallowed be your name. Who you are is holy God. And his kingdom, Christ reigning in the hearts of Christians and his future return and reign as king and Lord. His will. What he wants. And so we pray, God, you're awesome. You rule. Whatever you want. And because of that, 
We trust you to provide what we need every day. And forgive us our sins. And deliver us from evil. Keep us strong in testing that we would not fall into temptation to sin. We pray. Just like Jesus taught. It's a pattern for prayer. It's a a way of praying. But this is not self-centered prayer. This is not self-centered prayer. We ask God on behalf of the people of God. The community of believers that he is in process of developing and using for his glory. Jesus gives this model prayer, then he explains forgiveness a bit more. Look at verses 14 and 15. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus is highlighting just how important Forgiveness is by showing a direct connection between having been forgiven by God and us forgiving other people. By the way, these verses speak of only one aspect of forgiveness. It's not the total picture. This one aspect of forgiveness in which these verses are speaking of is the forgiveness that God gives to his children after they admit wrongdoing. The forgiveness God gives to his children after they admit wrongdoing. Kids, much like your parents do when, when you come to them and, and say, Mommy, Daddy, I, I did this wrong. And you say, I forgive you. They don't stop being your son or your daughter, right, parents? You still, you still uh, care for them and, and know that they're with you. But for a while, the relationship had been broken due to wrongdoing, due to sin. So, this idea here is that It doesn't mean that God will take away salvation from someone who has already received the free pardon offered in Christ. That forgiveness is permanent. That's another aspect of forgiveness that these verses are not talking about. The forgiveness you receive when you come to faith in Christ is permanent, complete. It is total acquittal from the guilt and the ultimate penalty of sin for all who are in Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 24, He who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Ephesians 1 and verse 7 In him, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our sins. The forgiveness of our trespasses. So the forgiveness that we receive when we first believe in Jesus for salvation involves acceptance of Christ's death as the one all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. Past, present, and future. Done once for all. God declares us not guilty on the basis of faith in Christ. He, He declares us judicially not guilty on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus. Just like in chapter 6 and verse 12, we, we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The idea in where it says that our Father will not forgive your trespasses, or He will forgive your trespasses, it, it refers to the restoring of relationship with God, not the initial justification which we receive when we come to faith. Think about it with me. If forgive us our debts meant asking daily for salvation, we'd have no security. Forgive us our debts doesn't mean we ask daily for salvation, but for daily cleansing. We are justified forever from the moment of initial saving faith. Romans 5.1 says, Having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this idea that we're praying for is for restoration of personal fellowship with God that has been blocked by sin. Those that have been forgiven by God, those that have received God's mercy in Christ, 
will be moved to gratitude, basically is what Jesus is pointing to. That those who have received salvation through Christ and the forgiveness that he offers will be moved with gratitude and be able to freely forgive those who sin against them. Those who are debtors to them. And again, if this, this is the fifth, the fifth request in the, Lord, in the disciples' prayer is, forgive us our debts. If this was asking for the forgiveness that comes to us in salvation, we would have no security. We'd always be losing and regaining our salvation. Some people live like that. It's a terrible way to live. It's not biblical. But the forgiveness that God gives when we come to faith in Christ is totally permanent. That's why Paul could say in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it on to completion until the day of Christ. Unbroken. Jeremiah 31.34, That God will remember our sins no more. In Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as God removed our transgressions from us. So Jesus, once again, is not, to to make sure we are clear, Jesus is not speaking of the forgiveness we receive at the first moment of salvation, but ongoing cleansing that happens over and over again in our lives. As we confess and are restored in our relationship with God, again, on an ongoing basis, on a daily basis. You know what happens when we neglect this? When we neglect to live like this, and really what it's called is living a lifestyle of repentance. When we neglect to live like this, we lose the joy of our salvation. There are a lot of Christians living like this with no joy in Christ. Many Christians living joyless lives due to not dealing with the ongoing need to confess and admit and repent and receive God's forgiveness. We know that God disciplines his children when they disobey. Go with me to, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5. In context, the writer of Hebrews is, is speaking of considering Jesus who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you would not grow weary and lose heart and and speaking about the fact that in the struggle against sin they had not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood some Christians had and then he says in verse 5 and you have forgotten the exhortation addressed as sons my son do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when you are reproved by him For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there that his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline of which all have become partakers, you are illegitimate children and not sons. So we know that as believers admit their sins to God and receive the daily cleansing, there is an element that God brings into our lives of, of discipline, but it proves that we belong to him. Similar to washing the feet and versus taking a bath or a shower, as John chapter 13, verse 10 alludes to. But here's the point. God will not give daily cleansing to Christians who will not forgive others. God doesn't work in halves. You know, I will give you forgiveness and you just go along and do whatever you want towards other people. You can receive all the benefits of of life in Christ, but live as you'd like as it relates to others, even in the body of Christ. God doesn't work in halves. It's all or nothing. Harry Ironside said it in this way, the government of God as father over his own children, our forgiveness of daily offenses, depends on our attitude towards those who offend against us. In God's government as father over his children, our forgiveness of daily offenses plays in to God's daily forgiveness of us. Go with me to Matthew 18, to a very, very well-known passage. In context, um, God has already talked about what to do when your brother sins against you. You go to him in private. You don't go air it out in the church. You go one-on-one. Maybe they haven't sinned against you. That'll get worked out when you talk. But if, if you think your brother sinned against you, go one-on-one, not with other people, and you, you speak to your brother or your sister. 
And if they listen, if there's a situation that was real and they listen, then you've won them over. And you know what to do after that if it doesn't happen. But then Peter comes up and asks a question. He says, Lord, how often should my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And we know, and Peter was being magnanimous. He says, well, should it be up to seven times? And Jesus basically said, limitless. Unlimited amount of times you are to forgive. I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And don't stop there. It's a, it really signifies an a ongoing, without limit type of forgiveness. And then Jesus goes on to say that the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wished to settle debts with his servants. And there was one that owed him a, an unbelievably uh, unpayable debt. Came down to the king and he, he begged for mercy and the, the king gave him mercy. He forgave the debt. But then the same servant went out to his fellow servant that owed him hardly anything and had him thrown in jail. What happened? Well, it went, got back to the king and the king said, forgiveness retracted. <laughs> forgiveness of your debt retracted. Now you're going to be in jail till you pay back everything you owe me. And the corker is this, verse 35. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You mess up your relationship with God when you don't forgive. Someone said to me after first hour, yeah, but what about the, 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 the I can't forget? They did this to me and I can't forget. I'm reminded of uh, something that Amy Carmichael said, a missionary to India. She said, in her little book, If, she said, if I, can, if I say, I can forgive but not forget, as if the God who twice a day washes all the sands on every shore of every sea could not wash such memories from my mind, then I know nothing of Calvary love. Forgiveness. Our relationship with God is hindered if we will not forgive. At the heart of forgiveness is Mercy. At the heart of unforgiveness is judgment. If you won't forgive, your relationship with God will be blocked. Fellowship broken. Progress stopped. You wonder why some people just get stuck. You put up a wall between you and God and you and other people. But most dangerously, you and other people. You set up a roadblock to growth in Christ until God in his mercy brings us to our senses. And we realize just how much he has forgiven us and then we in turn forgive others. We all know that the inability to forgive is at the heart of many problems in life. Being unable to let things go, keeping a grudge, keeping score. John Stott said it this way, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proved that we have minimized our own. I forgive you, by the way. That's a nice song. Kind of catchy. In the realm of forgiveness, in the realm of forgiveness, it, it often boils down to whether we will judge others or whether we will show them mercy, just like God has shown us mercy. Forgive, it means to release. It means to let go. It means to send away a debt. Mercy means to hold back punishment that's deserved. Judge means to act as a judge. It's a very self-explanatory word. You're a judge, you're in charge. You're gonna set down a verdict. You're gonna decide. Judge means to act as a judge, to control an outcome. You wonder why we have so many activist judges? Because power corrupts, and power in the hands of the wrong person will go the wrong way. When we judge, we're going the wrong way. We're trying to control the outcome that only God should be controlling. See, judging is when you don't forgive. Mercy is when you do. Now, I hope that it doesn't seem like too much of a leap or too much of a hard left turn at this point. But I want to focus much of what I say for the rest of our time together today on judging which often breeds an unforgiving spirit. One that is unwilling to yield. 
We know that judging others wrongly is destructive. What are the dangers of judging? I want you to go with me to just uh, one chapter past Matthew 6, to chapter 7, verse 1. Jesus says, judge not that, you be not that you not be judged. Judge not that you be not judged. Was there ever a time to judge? See, Jesus says, judge not because you will be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Get ready. It's coming. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Go right ahead and be really, really hard-nosed with people because it'll happen to you as well. And he says in verse 3, why do you see the, the speck that is in your brother's eye but don't notice the log that is in your own? For the King Jamers, it's the, it's the moat and the beam. But it's a big deal. You got a big piece of wood in your, in your eye and you're looking at a little speck in your brother's eye. And Jesus says, how can you say to your brother, well, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own. Jesus says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Well, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So is there ever a time to judge? Can we, can we never judge? Well, you, you, you need look no further than verse six. Jesus says, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Yes, there's a time to judge. Judging is right and necessary at times. In verse verse 6, it's talking more about the fruit that comes out of their life. In John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, Do not judge according to appearance. Shades of 1 Samuel 16, 7. Uh, man, Man judges on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Jesus says, Don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And when is that? When is judgment righteous? It's when someone who, who is, is right with God sees that sin is present and correction is needed and they go in the right spirit looking to themselves lest they fall as well and they go with, a, they speak the truth in love. That's righteous judgment. But we find it really hard to, to do that on a, on a regular basis. I find it hard to do that on a regular basis. More often than not, we we judge wrongly. I judge wrongly. You judge wrongly. Let's go to Romans 14. God's going to shed some more light on this this issue with us as we go to Romans 14. The whole idea of not passing judgment on one another, wrongly judging. We know that judging others wrongly is destructive. We know there are dangers. We know there is a time to judge, but we judge righteously. Righteously. We also know we have this tendency to judge wrongly. To come to conclusions about people that aren't true. John MacArthur said this about Romans 14. The diversity of the church shows God's power to bring together dissimilar people in genuine unity. The diversity of the church shows God's power to bring together dissimilar people in genuine unity. Think about it. What if we were all the same? That's boring. Who wants to be all the same with everybody? What if we all agreed all the time? Boring. God likes to spice things up. Put us all in the same church. He's creative. Got a good sense of humor too. MacArthur also said this, yet Satan often works on man's unredeemed flesh to create division and threaten unity. The threat to unity Paul addresses arose when mature or strong believers conflicted with immature, weak believers on matters of conscience. In those days, strong uh, Jewish believers believed that they should not, excuse me, that they could uh, eat food sacrificed to idols. Where weak Jewish believers said, no, I got to be completely away from everything I had before. Gentile believers that were strong said, you know what, I can, I can, enter into maybe something in our culture that before led me into sin, but now that I know Jesus, it isn't going to be a stumbling block. Weaker Gentile believers said, no, we can't do that. There were opinions on both sides of the coin, just like there are today. Opinions on both sides of the aisle. What do you do? We are not to pass judgment on people's opinions and convictions. Look at Romans 14.1. 
As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions, not to pass judgment on what he thinks. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, we take weak and strong and think, ooh, the weak was bad, the strong was good. That's not the judgment that's going on here. Paul's not making, the the Holy Spirit is not making this point that, wow, those weak ones, you better really be careful with them. The strong and the weak together, those whose conscience said, no, I can't, those whose conscience said, yes, I can, not a matter of sin. And he says, let not the one who eats, verse 3, despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. God's the judge. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The Lord is his master. You're not. I'm not. By the way, despise means to show contempt for someone as, as if they're worthless. Treat them as if they're worthless. To judge means to condemn. That in those days and even today, the strong hold the weak in contempt as legalistic and self-righteous. The weak judge the strong to be irresponsible at best and possibly even depraved. As a pastor, I talk with people a lot. It's a good thing I like to talk, right? I listen to... By the way, listening is much harder work. I know. You're doing the hard work right now. All right? But, but I talk to a lot of people. And, and regarding ministry, just like what we prayed when we were commissioning Doug, I love 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8. You know, t- talk about uh, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel but our very lives because you had become so dear to us. We were like a nursing mother tenderly caring for her own children. I love that. So God's word and people. Your life and the gospel, they go hand in hand perfectly. I love a healthy conversation. But sometimes, personal preferences get mixed with a need to be right. And we fall into the common trap of unfairly judging the opinions and convictions and motives of other people. I am guilty way too often as jumping to conclusions about people because of their opinions or how they share their opinions. You take any current hot topic in the Christian community right now, except for things essential for salvation, or leadership in the church, or moral issues, and some are going to follow one school of thought, others are going to follow another. And then sometimes they will land poles apart. I often warn believers of extremism and polarization that does not unite but divides the body of Christ. See, judging people's convictions and opinions easily turns into judging someone's motives. Well, they're doing it for this reason. They're doing it for that reason. They're, they're wrong. They're just off base. They're out to lunch. Sometimes we think that because the reason they think what they think is they just don't know the word. If they saw it the way I see it, they could just read their Bible. They'd understand it. But God has left some things not definite. <laughs> and these are not the things we die for, by the way. There are Christians right now, as, as I speak, that are dying for their faith in Christ. So the things like author- the authority of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection, the, the, the um, substitutionary atonement, the visible return of Christ, Those are things we should unite on. But there are peripheral things that are matters of choice that God has given to believers where sincere and intelligent Christians differ. In this very room, there are things like that. A balance is needed. Being a biblical Christian doesn't mean thinking you're right and everybody else is wrong. That comes from pride, not the gentleness and humility of Jesus. We see it on all fronts in our attitudes and conversations about things we prefer. And by the way, if you're a guest today, I'm glad you're here. But right now, we're going to turn a little corner, and we're going to have a little family talk. And you're welcome to stay in the family room, by the way. But I want to give you an example, and there are so many examples we could choose. So many examples, but I'm going to give you an example that has been an issue in some circles here at Grace Church over the years. And sadly, I see it in the present as well. Now, I'm going to say, what what I'm going to use as an example isn't the only thing. It doesn't define every person's life. It's just one aspect. 
And the people are loving each other so well here at this church. It doesn't like define someone because that would be the very same thing that we're saying, God's saying not to do. And it doesn't apply to everyone here directly, but many are indirectly affected. And it's regard to a long-running debate in the Christian community over what schooling options you should choose for your kids. Whether you should do public school or homeschool or private school. And some say, and I'm quoting by the way, we're not using names today though. Aren't you glad? If you send your kids to public school, you're sinning. People in this body have told other people that. Others have said this. If you don't send your kids to public school, you are weird and isolationist. You don't want to be salt and light. Some say every Christian needs to homeschool. Others say you're not being a good witness if you don't engage. We all know this, that sweeping statements on issues not clearly taught in Scripture don't help. Those often, uh, those polarize rather than bringing the body of Christ together. So what do you get? Camps within churches that are on one side of the aisle and the other looking over going, they're wrong. They're wrong. They got it wrong. I've got it right. When our battle is out there with the world, not each other. It's like a family that always has infighting. It's wrong, it's destructive, and it doesn't please God. By the way, the Bible does not specify the exact application of everything Christians choose to do. It's just not there. There is room for different preferences within the guidelines of biblical principles. Now, I know there are groups of believers all around that are thrashing the Bible. And they're saying, well, the Bible contains the Word of God. And they have now cut at the root, and everything else, all the branches are up for grabs. That's why you see one group after another waffling and and caving to cultural um, uh, pressure on moral issues and and biblical issues and many things. We're not talking about these things here. We're talking about things that are doubtful things, things that Scripture doesn't specify, things where it doesn't say, you, every Christian needs to do this. And while you may come up with a really good rationale, a biblical rationale for why you do what you do, you've got to hold, if you're going to follow Romans 14, hold your own convictions before God and let everybody else have their own. Got to do that. By the way, uh, I believe there are good and bad examples of all schooling options, public, private, and home. And that each Christian family needs to do as God directs them, not as the person giving you pressure on one side or the other are giving you, okay? Um, You've got to hold your conviction before God, but don't impose it on other people. And don't look down on others that, you, that think differently, thinking, well, if they only were as mature as me, they would come to this conclusion. It's the, it's the weak and the strong argument from Romans 14 all over again. I will also say that our kids, are, you know I have five kids. If you didn't, you know now. But uh, our five kids have been in home, public, and private schools. And all three have been positive uh, experiences that God has used for his glory in, our, in their lives. One Christian leader said this. Bring up children in the Lord by the methods you've prayerfully considered. And be careful judging other families' methods. We must not fall into the trap of believing there is one formula for raising Christian children. If there was, our children would not need a Savior. Our job is to show them Jesus and the truths of his word. The decision to follow or not is up to them. God's word coupled with his unique gifting of each person in Christ in different settings is bound to result in diverse applications. Diverse methods of application. So let's be careful to encourage and stimulate the application of the word and recognize it will not always look the same and that is okay. See, what happens is when people polarize, hardness of heart toward other believers often sets in and an unforgiving, critical, and bitter spirit takes over in the church. And people don't want to hang out with each other. And people avoid one another, even in the body. They walk the other way. They say things that are unkind, either to people's faces or behind their backs, either specifically or globally. 
And there's been just too much of that for my, for my liking lately. I've heard way too much in the last three weeks like that. I love Christ's church. And I love this church. And I, by God, as God, as my witness, as long as he has me as pastor in this church, I will not allow the church of Christ to be split up by people's polarizing opinions. It's not right. Look at 14, verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the, to the Lord. So then whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again that he would be both Lord of the dead and the living. He was talking about the one who ate is eating to honor God. The one who didn't eat is eating to honor God. The one who Observes the day is doing it to honor God. The one who doesn't deserve, observe the day is doing it to honor God. You can't call their motives into question. You can't even say they have to do it the way you do it. You got to let it be. You got to rest and let God be the judge. See, when you judge people's motives, the next step is calling their relationship with God into question. Well, they must just be weak and uncommitted. And Romans 14, 7 through 9 says otherwise. It says God is the one that we're living for. The focus of, the Christian, of Christian living is never to be ourselves, never to please ourselves, but God. I know we are living in very uncertain times. People are running for cover all over the place in so many ways. People are seeking security in so many ways. I couldn't believe it. The other day I'm listening to Christian radio and there was a program on about gold and how you should, you should invest in gold. And the, the host said this, Christians all over are running to gold for security. And he thought that was a good thing. (laughs) What's all that about? Some will trust in horses. Some will trust in chariots. But we will trust in the name of the Lord our God forever. The focus of the Christian life is never to please ourselves but God. 1 Corinthians 6.20 You have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Chapter 10, verse 31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So you have a different view. Maybe you feel like you're the only person in this church with that view. And it's not something that's essential for salvation. It's not something essential for leadership. It's not a moral issue. It's a peripheral issue. It's not something you're going to live and die about for. And you think, man, everyone else thinks this. And they're imposing this. You know what? Let's let each other hold our own convictions before God. We need to look for common ground. Common ground. It is tougher to do. It's much tougher to do, but more fruitful. It's, more, it's easier to go, and I like to say it this way, it's easier to go with all your friends that think the same way, your co-belligerents, and basically commiserate with each other about how the other side is so off base. And if only all Christians would see the way we see it. I don't care where you land. You can apply, you can speak just as loudly uh, any place uh, in, in any debate, right? It's tougher but more fruitful to engage in, in rigorous examination. Wherever you land on whatever debate is going on, test your assumptions by the word of God. What basis is there for them? Is it, it's, it's so much easier to say, well, I'm just right and everybody else is wrong. And, hey, that's the way I feel. That's the way it is. Well, test them on the word of God and, and study hard and do rigorous examination and la- land on as biblical a position as you can while allowing the others to follow their conscience as well. And sure, there'll be times when there's teaching opportunities where you can maybe help someone else see it, uh, something that they haven't seen. But we can't go around saying, you've got to do it my way. What you've got to do is live with a clear conscience before God is what you've got to do. All of us must live with a clear conscience before God and hold our convictions on non-essentials with large amounts of understanding for others who hold different opinions. Let me tell you what I was taught. And by the way, when I first came to this church, I came in with that mindset. I learned early on that not everyone was holding my mindset. 
And so I said it, I think my third weekend. I said, this is what I was taught. This is what I'm thinking. You need to know the rules I'm playing by. And it's this. Agree to disagree. And it's okay. But you can agree to disagree on things not relating to beliefs essential for salvation or leadership in the church or moral issues. We've got to be united in the immovables and the, and the unchangeables. On biggies, we must stand firm. But on lesser things that the Bible doesn't specifically uh, uh, teach, we must allow for differences. Here's what happens. When we, when we do the, the, the judging wrongly thing and we call other people's relationship with God into question, the most dangerous thing of all is, is what we do when we ignore our accountability before God. Look at Romans 14.10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We've got to be concerned with with that. Jesus is coming back. Of course you need to land somewhere. And I think you need to land strongly on your views. I don't think we should be wishy-washy and have no, no convictions about even the peripheral things, but we must hold them with degrees of, of understanding for others within this body. Uh, I've got a good friend who likes to say of his views on uncertain things, this is where I'm camping right now, where I'm camping out, okay? Because you can move the tent or the motor home or whatever you camp in, okay? You can move and go to another place. He knows things that views can change. Not on core doctrine, but peripheral things. But rather than allowing emotions to take over, which is what a lot of times happens in conversations, don't allow emotions to take precedence. We should engage in a conversation with those who differ. Who those who differ. And let me give you some ground rules for healthy dialogue. In fact, you need to write this down. Three things. Three things, ground rules for healthy conversation, healthy dialogue on things which Christians differ on. The first is this. Understanding must come before evaluation. Those are the rules I'm playing by. I want you to as well. Understanding comes before evaluation. Don't just say, I don't like that, so it's, it's not good. You know, they're wrong and I'm right, so hey, I'm not even gonna talk about it. No, understanding comes before evaluation. Don't evaluate another person's view till you understand it. And then seek to, number two, seek to understand more than be understood. Seek to understand more than seek to be understood. Uh, two ears, one mouth. You do the math, you know. Um, and then the third thing is evaluation must be fair. Evaluation must be fair. So ground rules for healthy dialogue. Understanding must come before evaluation. Seek to understand more than be understood. And um, evaluation must be fair. It's so easy for us to build straw man arguments. You know what that is? Where, where you, take, you set up the weakest point of the opposing view and then you knock it down. That's easy. Anyone can do that. Take their strongest point and wrestle with it. Take their, their, their good, listen to them and find out what their rationale is. It's different than what you were judging them for, most likely. James 3.6 The tongue is a fire. Powerful for good or evil. So we are very wise to ask this question. What if? What if our homes and church and schools and, and public, the public square, what would it be like if we held our tongues a bit more and only spoke what was necessary and good to building others up? And I don't mean just out in front of everybody, but also when you go hang out with your friends at lunch. You know what I'm talking about. What would it be like in our homes and churches and schools and the public square if we held our tongues a bit more and only spoke what was necessary and good for building people up? It's, it's easy to go, well, I'm just telling the truth. But is it necessary? Well, I'm just being honest. Well, does it build anyone up? Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Paul's talking about walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And at the end of the chapter, it's already gone through the, the, what what does it mean to have new life in Christ? What does it mean to have this changed life? And look at verse 29, Ephesians 4, 29. 
Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, literally rotten, uh, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Is, is it good for building up? Does it fit the occasion? Does it give grace to those who hear? And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ also forgave you. We're all the way back to Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. And again, if you struggle with any of these issues, it doesn't define your whole life. I know that. It doesn't define your entire life, but it's one aspect. It's one aspect of, of living together in Christ and in community with others that God has put together in a diverse community and God can handle the differences. It's okay. You know, wrongly judging dishonors God. It's easy to give personal preferences and, practical, uh, and practices doctrinal status or make the Bible say what we want it to say. But we need to listen to Jesus and what he says to his church in the word. Let the scriptures speak, let God's people respond. One Christian leader says this, one of Satan's greatest devices is to get us rabbit trailed. Our foremost duty is to exalt Christ while teaching and living the truth of scripture. Useless arguments cloud this responsibility and rob it of valuable resources while causing dishonor to Christ because of selfish interest and infighting. By God's grace, let's not go there as a church. And if we've, done, if we've got, started to go down that road, let's put it in reverse and back down that road and take the high road, not the low road. We need to listen to one another, encouraging one another, consider how to stimulate one another, one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as at the habit of some, but all the more encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day? The return of Jesus. Jesus is coming back, and we've got to get ready for that. The judging wrongly promotes disunity. I, I care deeply about people. I care deeply about Christ's church. I care deeply for this church, and I yearn for unity amongst the people of God amidst diversity. How does that go um, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, diversity in all things, charity? I think that's how it goes. But the words, every Christian should, or every Christian needs to, needs to be followed by, believe that Jesus is God, believe the Bible is true, share their faith in Christ, forgive others. It should not be followed by, send their kids to public school, or homeschool, or whatever other things we like to debate on that aren't clearly taught in Scripture. Major on the majors, not on the minors. When teaching is done, and, and this, again, this is the, the ground rules I play by, when teaching is done on things that aren't essential for salvation or leadership or a moral issue, you need to acknowledge that sincere and intelligent Christians differ. And that's all right. God can handle those differences. The last thing I want to mention about judging wrongly is that it disqualifies us from service. Again, God doesn't work in halves. You can't say, I'll take your forgiveness, God, but I won't be giving it out. Okay? You block your relationship with God. Your service is tainted. Your service is not as, as effective as it would be were you clean and clear before God with a heart that was right before him. And only God knows. It's the OGK again. Only God knows. But when we are engaged in carnal strife, we are not... We cannot be simultaneously engaged in honoring God. It doesn't work that way. We block worship. We take ourselves out of the game. When we repent, though, we re-engage with God. Like I said, we need to stand together in the battle. Our enemy is Satan, and we need to hold firmly to the unchangeable and immovable and not, not fight fellow Christians in the body of Christ over preferences. When we do that, we will be quick to show mercy. We'll be quick to forgive. Last thing I want to mention, a few benefits of mercy. What's so good about mercy? What does mercy do? What does God do in the lives of those who 
extend the mercy they've been given. Well, it brings greater glory to God. It brings greater glory to God. As Piper says, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. That when we find our satisfaction in him, we are more able to extend mercy. We free people to live as God directs. And mercy restores broken relationships. Mercy restores. And how do we know that? Because God's word tells us that when we come to God through Jesus Christ admitting sin and seeking forgiveness, we can be assured of the result. God will forgive. But we've got to be sure that we will forgive as well or else we'll block that forgiveness. And mercy refocuses us for service. Like Jesus did with Peter. Peter repented of his denial of Christ. Some of us need to repent of some things. Some of us need to repent of our attitudes even towards other Christians with whom we may differ on matters. Matters of opinion. Which often, here's what happens. You, you, you do that and you polarize against other Christians. It leads to being unforgiven when big things happen between you. When bigger things come between you. Then the words of Bob Newhart in the Mad TV skit, just stop it! Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. Don't do it anymore. (laughs) See, when you have a clear view of the cross, then you have a clear view of yourself. When you have a clear view of the cross, you see clearly your need and how much you need to forgive and how much you need to be forgiven by other people. James 2.13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The one who will escape the charges justice will bring against him on the day of judgment is the one who has, as a condemned sinner, fled for refuge to Jesus. He who shows mercy to others gives evidence of having received God's mercy. John Piper put it this way, the apex of the glory of Christ is the glory of his grace. Treating people infinitely better than they deserve giving himself for the everlasting joy of the worst of sinners who will have him as their highest treasure. You see, we go free because Jesus was judged for us. We go free because the condemnation that we deserved fell upon him. And when you see that, when you grasp that, your whole view of the world changes. Your view of God changes. Your view of yourself changes. Your view of others changes. And that's why we need to keep seeing this over and over again on a daily basis as Jesus instructs because we forget. We forget. But when your view changes and you see things differently, you realize you don't have to be right, you don't have to prove other people wrong, and you will look with eyes of hope on all. You'll show mercy, not judgment. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so good to to open our eyes to things in your word. I trust, Lord, that you have done and are doing a work in each one of our hearts. Mine first. I know we need to remember this daily because every day I'm tempted to fall back into old patterns of judging and and being critical and, and seeing things just because of people's opinions that divide. But I pray, Lord, that you would unite us by love and give us strength by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.